Um, if you don't know me, my name is John Fox, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at the church. And today, I have the pleasure of giving you the second-to-last sermon in the book of Mark over Palm Sunday, what is Jesus' death. And this, uh, this is a, a passage that I had some difficulty with this week, and I'll tell you why in just a second. If you want to get there, it's going to be in Mark 33 through 47, uh, chapter 15, verse 33 through 47. And uh, as I was studying this past week and the week before, I, was, I realized a couple things. And uh, the first is that I am very grateful that God has not given me more suffering than I already have had in my life. And uh, I think that one makes a lot of sense. I don't really hear too many people volunteering for suffering, you know, sticking their hand up, looking, asking for something bad to happen in their life. Uh, normally, it's just the reverse, right? And when some sort of adversity or suffering or darkness comes in our life, then we, uh, we push it away. But uh, the second thing I'm, I'm grateful for is this, that I'm grateful for the suffering that God's given me. I consider it a grace. And I say that because of this passage. And it brought to mind uh, a time in my life, I really couldn't shake it out of my mind as I was preparing, uh, that happened only a few years ago. Uh, many of you know my wife, Andrea, and about, uh, about uh, six years ago, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I worked on my uh, Master's of Divinity at Southern Seminary. And uh, the first couple years there were really awesome. We were there for about four years. Uh, lots of hard work, lots of studying. And, and the, the next, after that, became uh, far more difficult uh, because of the circumstances that had happened in our lives. One of the major things was my mother-in-law, Andrea's mother, passed away while we were there. Uh, and then not long after that, uh, I got the flu, which is like, well, it's the flu. It's not that bad. But um, it, it progressed. And for a year, for ac actually 11 months, I, I was periodically sick. And not just sick, like, oh, I, I feel like I have a fever or a cold. Like, it got more and more intense. And uh, at that time in my life, I also uh, was overcommitted. So I realized that a number of the repercussions were my own fault. Um, but, uh, you know, full-time work, full-time school, part-time working at a church, and uh, a new baby, our first, which was jolting for sure. And uh, during that time, I, I became horribly depressed. I mean, more th so than ever in my life. I've always been a little bit sort of uh, tending towards melancholy, as people a couple hundred years ago would say. Same thing, depression. Um, but it was at that point that I, I really reached a new low and somewhere I'd never been in my life. And part of it was due to the job. I also had a couple significant back injuries that affected my health. And, and during that time, uh, everything, everything became dark to me. Nothing was light. Everything was bleak. And uh, it was only a little bit after that that one day I got up to go to work, a very uh, labor-intensive job at a machine shop, and I couldn't stand. I fell over. And then I, uh, I said, well, that was different. And uh, so I got up, and I tried to walk again, and I couldn't do it, and I fell over. 
and uh, my wife was there, and of course she uh, responded probably more appropriately than I did, which was just give me a few minutes and I'll be fine. Um, Like, no, you need to go to the doctor. So eventually go to the doctor, and after some rounds of consultation and testing, uh, we determined that I had viral meningitis. And if you don't know what that is, uh, it is an infection of the central nervous system that can do a number of things to you. Uh, it can just lay you out for quite some time, make you very weak and sick, or it can cripple you. There are different, you may lose the use of some limbs or something like that, or it can kill you. It's very serious. And, um, and so that's where I was. So we went to the hospital, and I was there overnight, and I'm thinking, man, I've got papers to do. I got, I got stuff to do. I can't be here. Uh, but at this point, in relation to all the other things going on, I realized this is not somewhere I want to be. I don't even want to be alive. This is not a place I want to be in life. I would rather die than go on like this. And the next day, the infectious disease doctor came in, and he told me that it was a good thing I came in, and he thanked me for it, and he said that if I hadn't come in, I probably would have been dead in three days. And that was the moment that really shocked me, I think, to the realization that something has to stop. Uh, this is, if I continue living in this place, uh, it literally will be the death of me. And so I think about that story this past week because it's so uh, dark and so bleak and it's such a, a rough time in my life that I couldn't help but relate to the passage. And, and you may say, uh, wow, that's, that's an awful lot, Pastor John. Thanks. This is my first, it's not even the second date yet, and you just dumped everything on me. Uh, well, I don't intend to, but I want to lead us that direction because that is where Mark is taking us. And as far as a rev- review of Mark goes, Mark, as we said, has been extraordinarily fast, the fastest of all the Gospels. Jesus is, is sprinting to the cross, as you read. And by the time we get to this point in the book of Mark, he slows down to a painstaking pace. He, he views hours, the remaining hours of Jesus' life, and gives us the picture. So I don't feel that bad in leading you this direction because Mark is doing the same for us. Jesus has been brought before Pilate on trumped-up charges, sent across Jerusalem for Herod's jurisdiction and amusement, sent back to Pilate and publicly condemned by his own nation, sentenced to death by crucifixion instead of a known murderer, mocked, humiliated, scourged, and crucified. This is the darkest hour of Jesus' life. It's It's the time that you could say the darkest night of the soul. There is no darker point in history than this. In all of history, all that came before and all that comes after, this is the darkest point in history. And Mark will say as much. He will say that Jesus is forsaken. And so today, that's what we're going to look at in this section, is the forsakenness of Jesus. And as I talked about with myself, this is something to relate with. It's not something that's completely abstract. And I bet many of you are in some way relating to this very emotionally right now. And that brings me to the main point for this morning. It's this, that anyone can make it through their darkest moments by knowing three things plus another. 
So I try to keep it a little bit light for you. There is one other thing that we'll hit at the end, but the three things are this. It's the cry of the forsaken, the confession of the forsaken, and the community of the forsaken. We'll take them in turn. Let me start reading in Mark 15. Mark 15, 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, darkness, as I have talked about so far, pervades the, the, the tone of this message, and very much so because this is what was happening to Jesus. The first thing that we notice about in these verses, besides Mark slowing down, is that there is a, a literal darkness that comes to Jesus on the cross. And uh, by saying it's the sixth hour, that's saying it's noon. So here we are at Golgotha, noon, high noon, and all of a sudden the sky becomes incredibly dark. Not just that, but Mark tells us that it becomes dark across the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. So if you're following the chronology, here we are at the cross at 12, and by 3 p.m. everything is black. The scene is incredibly dark. And what was this darkness? Well, people say a few different things. Uh, a lot of people say it could be an eclipse, a solar eclipse. And as you're thinking about it, we're like, well, that makes sense, right? There's, it comes across the sun. You can't see the sun. So, okay, solar eclipse. But the problem is this, it doesn't fit the passage because a solar eclipse would only last for a few minutes. And this thing is lasting for three hours. Other people say it could be a windstorm. So you're in... Israel, there's lots of sand round about, and if the wind kicks up all the sand, then it can make even the sun go dark for a number of days, and that still happens. But the problem with this is that it's actually during Passover, which tells us it's during a certain month in the Jewish year, which is the rainy season. So we're not having sandstorms and windstorms during the rainy season. This is something else. This is a supernatural darkness. As Mark shows us, it's the only option that's left. The idea of judgment and darkness go hand in hand in the Bible. If you start to think about it, there's a number of passages in the Bible that, that talk about darkness, and I'll just give you a few of them. One would be in Exodus 10, when Moses comes, God sends Moses to Egypt to let my people go. Then he sends a number of plagues to make this happen. And the ninth plague would be the plague of darkness. Now, uh, this is remarkably similar. This is a darkness that, that doesn't just cover up the sun, but explicitly, Moses tells us as he writes, that this is a darkness that could be felt. So the result of this is that for three days, while this darkness goes on, people don't even get out of their bed. Like they're terrified because of this darkness. That's probably something that Mark has in mind. But more than that, he has, I'm sure, Amos 8. And this is some, one of the, uh, the minor prophets in the, New in the Old Testament as it ends and goes through the New Testament that he, he will say this about the great and awesome day of the Lord, this day of darkness. In verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Mark is telling us that this day is the day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, where his, his wrath is poured out against sin and sinners. This, the shocking thing for us, though, is that you would expect God to be coming on the clouds of heaven, like Scripture talks about elsewhere, and bringing this wrath, this darkness, to all mankind, because we all fall short of God's glory. But the shocking thing is, is falling on Jesus, all of it. And so we see the next bit in Mark, in verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, so 3 p.m. now, Jesus has been on the cross for six hours. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying what the world around him and the people around him, his entire circumstance is saying that he has been utterly forsaken by God. Now, if you notice, you might have a note in your Bible or something like that, but Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament here. He's not just saying what he's feeling, even though I think he is, but he's also quoting King David, who wrote Psalm 22. And the first couple of verses of the song, the psalm go like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This could have been any number of situations in David's life where he was being hunted or betrayed. It happened all the time. The one person who really mattered and could save him, God, was of no help in his greatest hour of need. This is where David was emotionally, felt completely abandoned. But Jesus takes this psalm to say, if David felt that way, I feel that way more. If this was true of David, it was really only true of me. It was true of David to point to me. This is the one reason Jesus quotes the psalm. He is abandoned by God. Now, something else, just to push the point a little bit further for us about this despicable moment in Jesus' life is uh, something that you, you get a little bit more if, if in the original language. So something that's happening is when it's translated to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark uses a certain word to say forsaken. Now, if I can just geek out on you here a little bit, uh, I, I, won't, I won't actually give you any Greek, but there are two different ways to say something in the past in Greek. Either you can say something happened, a very simple sentence, a very simple method of saying something that happened is in the past, or you can use a different verb to say that something happened, and in a sense, it's happening. Uh, it, it has a holistic aspect to it, and this is what Mark does when he's talking about Jesus being forsaken on the cross. It's not that Jesus is just, he experienced something and it's over. Mark is telling us that Jesus experienced on the cross being cut off from God and that now becomes his new identity. You see, Jesus on the cross doesn't just get the wrath of God and it's over with. Mark tells us that for Jesus, this becomes the place where he lives he now is completely cut off and forsaken from everyone, including, and most importantly, 
God. And that might not mean a lot to us initially, because when we hear forsaken, we think, oh, well, this is sort of a, it's a melodramatic way of saying, saying abandoned, right? But it's worse than that. There's more going on here than just being abandoned. God is present in the suffering. So if, if you were to think about it this way, it may help. Let's imagine that uh, I meet you, you know, for the first time or the second time, and we're just acquaintances, and we have some sort of uh, very minor relationship. And then you, uh, with totally, in, not in response to anything that I've done, come up to me and, and say, I can't stand you, I'm never going to see you again, goodbye. Then I, I'd probably have my feelings hurt, right? I think most people would. But I'd, I'd be okay, I would get by. But... If that same sort of thing happened with my wife, it would be completely different. If I got home and Andrea left me a letter that says, I'm leaving, I'll never see you again, I would be crushed, right? Because of the intimacy involved. And that's what's going on here that we see in Mark. Jesus is not just an acquaintance with the Father. He doesn't say, my friend, my friend, have you forsaken me? He doesn't even use that language for anybody else. It's a very personal, intimate language. He says, my God, I know, I know this person. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is part of what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. Isaiah will talk about it this way in Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people? Sounds like Jesus. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, rich man at his death, which is what we're about to see. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. What we see here is what Jesus has been saying throughout the Gospel of Mark, that this is no accident. Going to the cross is no accident. It's been planned before the foundation of the world. The Son was crushed by the Father on the cross. This is the darkest moment of Jesus' life. And I'm sure for you that you've had very dark moments too. You may be in it right now. Could be that your spouse has committed adultery on you. Or it could be that you just keep trying to find a job, you can't stand the one you're in, and you can't find anything else. It could be a debilitating depression that just hits you chronically or unexpectedly, and you have no idea why. You don't see anything else wrong in your life. There's no other major things. I heard one pastor talk about it this before, that some days he was so depressed when he was praying in the morning that he couldn't even remember his children's faces. It was so heavy on him. It could be like that for you. It could be a crippling loneliness that you just feel like you don't have any other friends. You want friends, but you don't feel like anyone knows you, understands you, relates to you. Or it could be the loss of a family member or a friend. When these sort of dark times come in our lives, what we can see is Jesus knows. He knows. He's suffered more. He's gone through more darkness than any of us. For believers in Jesus, 
whatever the situation is, the reason for any of those things happening to us can't be that God is punishing us. It's something to think about and really take in. So let me say it again. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever is happening in your life, if you know this Jesus, it is not happening to you because God is punishing you. You will never, as a Christian, receive God's punishment. Everything that happens to you is of grace. Even the most difficult things in your life. And if that's difficult for you to believe, let's keep reading. Mark hones the point down for us. Verse 35, And some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is a, kind of an odd thing that's happening. We see this, the, the sky is swirling with darkness. Jesus is crying out. And then all of a sudden, these people next to him are crucifying him, overseeing this and watching him, say, hey, he just called Elijah. What, what's happening here? I think it's just a simple misunderstanding, but there's still some significance to it. In Aramaic, the, the same word for God sounds very similar to that of Elijah. So I'm sure that these men hear Jesus say something like Elijah, and they think, oh, Elijah's coming. Now, if you were Jesus, and if you had been kept up all night long, been beaten, tortured, ridiculed, cru- and crucified, I think you, you would probably be a little bit slurred in your speech too, right? So that's understand- understandable. It makes sense to us that we can, we can see why they may think this. But what we don't understand is why they're thinking about Elijah. They have some sort of religious history or expectation, something in their mind here. And, and Mark, we'll get to it in just a second, but then he, he transitions and he'll go to a different verse. He says in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, so now we see Jesus cries. They think it's, he's calling for Elijah and he cries again. And a curtain is torn from top to bottom. So things are getting a little bit more confusing here. Why is Mark including all this? And I think it's useful to know a little bit about the curtain. Uh, If you know anything about ancient Israel and the temple, then you would know uh, that there are different parts of the temple that you can go into. There's an outer court, there's an inner court, court of Gentiles, there's all these different courts, and they all move in succession to the the core of the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. And in the core of the temple, the Holy of Holies, sits an ark where God dwells. And if you go into that area, you die. Unless you're the high priest who offers sacrifice once a year. That's the only exception. And what separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, the structure is a giant curtain. Uh, and I say giant because it is massive, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. This thing was about a foot thick. It's ridiculous. It was ornate, it was elaborate, and it was something to communicate, no one goes in here 
except for one person once a year. And this is what tears from top to bottom. Now, Mark brings this up because he's saying something. He's saying Jesus' death does something. Unlike so many other deaths in history, they did nothing. Jesus' death actually does something. There were numerous times in the Old Testament when people would come into this presence of God and immediately they're struck down. At one point, they're transporting the ark from one place to another and it's going to fall. One guy reaches out to grab it to keep it from falling and as soon as he touches it, he dies. Why? Because God can't stand sin. It deserves punishment. So we, here we have Mark talking about this curtain being torn. And by being torn, he's saying something has changed. Jesus' death has actually changed the way things have been for centuries. There's only one way to God, and it was through this elaborate use of rituals and ordinances. And once a year, sins could be forgiven. But now something has changed. Now, people can go directly to God through the torn curtain. And that's what we see next. In verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion confesses in amazement how the Son of God died, how Jesus died. So you might have another note in your Bible that says a couple different things. Either he's saying that Jesus, he called Jesus the Son of God or the Son of a God. Regardless, he now believes Jesus is divine. And this presents uh, a real problem for the centurion. You see, centurions are rough men. You can't really run across a harder character in the Roman Empire than a centurion. Centurions have command of 100 men. And they don't get there by, by good friendship and, and relationships. They get there by grit and determination. Centurions are not aristocrats. They're not given commissions for certain territories and provinces. The way that they get to their state is by fighting hard, by killing and leading, by sleeping out in the field. This is someone who is rough. I mean, when you think about a rough individual, this is the guy. He's not going to be the least bit sympathetic to somebody dying on a cross. But this is what we see about the centurion, that somehow he's pierced to the heart. Jesus' death, unlike the hundreds of deaths before, has somehow affected him. Mark tells us that it's in the way that Jesus breathed his last breath. That affected him. So, what is this second cry that Jesus does? Well, Mark doesn't capture it for us, but John does in his gospel. And he'll say, say that it's one word, one final statement that Jesus says, to telestai, which means it is finished. So, Jesus, at the end of his suffering, looks to the Father and says, It's done. I've done all that you commanded me to do. The work of salvation is completed. And the centurion sees this, and we don't know exactly what was going through his head. We can only conjecture certain things, but 
But what we see with the centurion is that he sees Jesus in a completely different light than he did before. Now, he, he calls Jesus the Son of God. This may not seem like a big deal to us, but it was huge for him. Why? To be a centurion means you were in command of men. Not only that, you were placed under command by Rome. You had one allegiance as a Roman to Caesar, who is the Son of God. To say, and this is why so much persecution broke out against the church after this, to say that anyone else is God or anyone else is the Son of God is to commit high treason is to, certainly if you're in Rome, forfeit your life. You cannot say anyone else is God but Caesar. And here the centurion, seeing the way he dies, freely confesses this is him. This is the Son of God. And what, what impacted him? What changed the centurion? I think it was a couple things. As we said, the centurion oversaw many deaths. He'd seen seen many people take their last breaths. But if, you, if you've ever been around anyone who has died, who's taken their last breaths, you know it's a moment unlike any other. It's not a moment you forget. It's burned into your mind. It's like you can't see life the same without looking through that lens. And this man had a lot of those. And he had become calloused and hard to it. But when he saw the way that Jesus died, he saw something completely different. Unlike the other men next to him that were crucified, Jesus is not spewing out venom. He's not blaming other people. He's not, oftentimes when someone was crucified, uh, I don't want to get too vulgar, but they would often try to pee on the people around them just to spite them, just to try to get back at them for the horrendous suffering that they were experiencing. And when this centurion sees how Jesus is suffering, he hears no word of accusation. He, he hears no negative word. All he sees is a lamb-like posture of laying down his life, and here he is wondering, how in the world could someone experience something like this and remain that way? You see, this centurion saw through to who Jesus really was, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, come to lay his life down for people voluntarily. And so I think Mark begs to ask us the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this is a question all through the book of Mark. It's one of the main themes. And we see it pop up a number of times. The father calls Jesus the beloved son in Mark 1. In Mark 3, demons say that he's the son of God. In Mark 8, Jesus asks his closest friends, who do people say that I am? And in Mark 14, just before this, what happens is the high priest puts him under oath saying, Tell us who you are. Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And Jesus' response here for all to see that the centurion says loudly is, yes, he's the son of God. And so I ask you, do you, 
understand this confession? Have you made this confession? Is Jesus someone to you who is an acquaintance? Is he someone who you don't know that well? You think, well, he was a man who died. There's all sorts of even theologians while reading this that they say, well, Jesus, he just, he missed the message. He missed that God actually wanted him to come back in power before he died and take over Rome. No. Do you see this lamb-like man who lays down his life? Is your heart harder than the centurion's heart? Is it more calloused? When you see Jesus or you hear about him, is all that comes to your mind critiques? Or are you willing to see the beauty of him dying for you? Mark goes on. So that's the cry of the forsaken and the confession of the forsaken. And now we move on to the community of the forsaken. See, Mark doesn't leave us there. He moves on. In verse 40, he, he starts to add other people into the story. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and the Mary of mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So Mark now, he'll give us a little bit different picture of not just the suffering, but it, it produces something like the centurion walking through the, the torn curtain, through the veil, the first one to come to the realization of Jesus as God, now Mark will give us eyewitnesses to this fact. So first he gives us the centurion as part of this community. Oddly, how odd, how ironic that the forsaken one of God now has a community around him. And first it's the, it's the centurion. Next it's these women who followed him through his whole ministry. And then as we keep reading, we're going to see it's a couple more people, Joseph and Pilate even. Any one of these people could have been asked whether or not Jesus actually died while the gospel was in circulation. And they could have answered yes. You see, Mark includes this section for authenticity's sake. He's writing in the first century the account of Jesus for the church, and this is circulating throughout the Roman world in Jerusalem. And people are reading it, and they're like, wait a second, you said Jesus rose from the dead in the next chapter. Certainly he couldn't have really died. And that's what a lot of people think. Well, maybe Jesus was like really sick and they took him and he wasn't quite dead yet and they nursed him back to health. But this is not what Mark is saying. Mark is clearly saying he died. There are all sorts of eyewitnesses to verify a historical fact in history. And it doesn't work if you do that and the people are still living. So if someone's dead and you say, well, yeah, this amazing thing happened, and this person saw it, and this person saw it. Like my great-great-granddad, he saw it. He saw it happen. Well, how am I going to argue with you? Like, he's not alive anymore, you know? But for these people, Mark clearly says, you can ask them. Here are their names. Here are their positions. Here's what they did. So we have eyewitness accounts of what happened, but 
A lot of people just stop there, and I think Mark has a bigger point in mind than that, and it's this, that there is a community coming around Jesus. In verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Mark, Matthew tells us that this Joseph who's also a member of the council, is a disciple of Jesus, but he's below the radar like Nicodemus is. He doesn't want anyone to really know because he'll lose his status. But here, it, he takes courage, and he comes before Pilate and asks for the body. He wants to honor Jesus. And Pilate, surprised to hear that he should have already died, summons the centurion, asks him whether he was already dead. See, Pilate's smart. He knows if Jesus is still alive and this guy takes him, he's not going to finish the job. So he verifies, says, yes, he's dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The corpse. Jesus is dead. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Why does Mark include all these people and all this information? He didn't have to. I think it's for this reason. Jesus, as we see, even in his death, now has a community of people around him. Given the total abandonment that Jesus had experienced, you would think that there would be no one left to take care of his body. But actually, he has a lot of people to take care of him. The forsaken of God now has community of people around him. And this is something I think maybe the author of Hebrews has in mind. In Hebrews 10, when he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence, we have confidence to enter through the holy, enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from every, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed from pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And then this verse comes up, which I know many of you know, but this is how the author talks about it, passing through the veil, knowing Jesus now. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, Jesus' work on the cross is tied to creating a community of people who love him and care for one another. This is one of the greatest things that we could hear, is that for us, in your darkness... You're never meant to go through it alone. Just as Jesus has this community around him, he creates a new family, a new community by which we can walk with him together. And so I think Mark asks us another question here. Are you trying to live the Christian life on your own? We have community groups here at the church and this is why we have community groups. 
It's because Jesus, by virtue of his suffering, death, and resurrection, has created a new community, a new life. So when you're walking through these dark times, think, am I, I feel alone, but I, am I actually alone? And for me, to go back to the story at the beginning, this is how it was for me. I felt completely alone, but it took some great community to help me along the way. My wife was key, and we had two or three other couples. And it wasn't complicated. I mean, they didn't do anything crazy. All they would do is have us over for dinner, have some good food. They would pray for me. They would hear where I was at. And through that, I began, began to gain hope. And it's the same with this community for you. So I want you to think about this. Are you in a place where there's maybe some hidden sin that you just don't feel like you can get out of that has a grip on you? It's really impossible to think not having. There's a community for you to help you. Or if, if it's not sin, maybe it's just not anything sinful that you've done or are doing, but maybe it's just something that's happened. Like someone's died or some other great loss has happened in your life. There's a community for you. We are Christ's community church. That's why we have community groups. If you're in a community group, let me encourage you. Share with people in your group. Ask for help. Even after we're done here, we always provide a time where leaders on the side can pray with you. We want to help you and pray for you. So Mark shows us the cry of the forsaken. He shows us the confession of the forsaken and the community of the forsaken. But there's one other thing that I think you have to know in order to get through your darkest moments. Knowing those three things really doesn't change a lot for you. And I think everyone knows that. Simply cognitive knowledge doesn't help sometimes. What you need is something else. You need power. And this is what happens in the next chapter for Easter Sunday. But it's also something that I think Mark is hinting at here by quoting Psalm 22. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He only quotes the first line of the psalm. And it's something that you would do if you were a good Jew. You'd have the psalms memorized. But in order to know what the psalm was, all you do is memorize the first line of the psalm. That's how you index. You didn't have numbers. So Jesus wouldn't have known Psalm 22 in my memory bank. He would have known, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's more to the psalm than that. The psalm ends by talking about how even though he's been forsaken of God, he will be redeemed and restored. And this one who has forsaken him will one day raise him up and give him the nation's who the Father has just done with the centurion. We have to know one other thing to get through the darkest times, and it's this, the resurrection. All of those things matter for nothing if Jesus did not actually raise from the dead. And Hebrews would talk about it this way, again, Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience 
through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If we are to make it through our own darkest moments, then we must see Jesus being forsaken for us. Confess him as Lord and God like the centurion. Embrace his community for help and life and believe that he both died and rose to give us life with God. This is our gospel message. This is what we have to believe in as a church. This is where life is found. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming to lay your life down for us in your son. Thank you that you did not respond as we all would respond when suffering with hate, retaliation, but instead your son willingly laying down his life for us. God, would you give us hope and faith in his suffering and his death and in his life. Father, I ask that for those of us that have something on our mind, something we know that we need to talk about with somebody, something that we have to pull into the light, something we have to address, or something just to ask help for, to pray for. Father, would you give these people courage to do that? Like Joseph took courage to come before Pilate, risking his own neck to do something for you. Father, we ask all these things in your son's name. It's by his blood that we pray. Amen.